I write jokes for a living, while I also write food reviews, local features, and technical content about cloud computing, I am fun, but my income these days is about 65% jokes. I write jokes about yeast infections and salami. As a kid, I was often described as too much, wearing underpants on my head to get laughs at sleepovers. If you didn't wear underpants on your head at slumber parties, you're legally not allowed to submit late night packets. Sorry. I'm Rosanna Stevens, and this is The Antidote for the Belladonna, an interview podcast profiling women and non-binary comedy writers set in a place of personal significance for them. That was satirist and humour writer Lillian Stone reading from an article she wrote for Hello Giggles about Mindy Kaling's film Late Night and the rise of vulnerability in comedy. Lillian is currently based in Chicago and she was recently named one of Paste Magazine's 15 Best Humorists Writing Today. You can find her work in The New Yorker, Allure Magazine, McSweeney's Internet Tendency, Reductress, and a stack of other titles. Lillian is also a staff writer for Omnarchy, a dystopian satire site, and just recently she became one of the managing editors for The Belladonna, but when we sat down for this conversation, that hadn't happened yet. Despite having so many publications under her belt, I asked Lillian to read that part of her Hello Giggles article because it touched on something that we're going to be visiting a lot in this episode, and that is the fact that Lillian Stone knows herself. Lillian has taken the time to work out exactly what makes great comedy to her. She spent heaps of time writing comedy that didn't work until something clicked, and she's also worked out that the stuff that she loves about comedy is actually evident in her childhood and in her personality today. Lillian's apartment sits a couple of floors up on what was at the time a leafy autumnal street in the northern suburbs of Chicago. Hey. That sound is Lillian's co-worker. Turtle is an extremely busy black and white Boston Terrier. Lillian is a full-time freelance writer, so when I walked into her apartment, the first thing I noticed was that her laptop was open on the coffee table opposite her sofa, and while Turtle got busy playing with his toys, Lillian was streaming the news. What does a full-time load as a freelance humour and satire writer look like? Yeah, so I divide my day up into a few different things. So the portion of my day that is not devoted to humor writing is devoted to a pretty traditional lifestyle and business journalism, which is uh, what my degree is in and what my background is in. So I do some of that for a few food publications and uh, local publications for my hometown. And then the rest of the time is spent working on either corporate clients or nonprofit clients. So I'm working uh, with an app right now uh, that's based in behavioral science research on narrative humor arcs, which is a blast. And then the rest of the time is devoted to either humorous essays for a collection that I'm working on or pieces to submit to places like McSweeney's and uh, The New Yorker and places like that. When you describe what your work is, it sounds as though you have to have a very particular kind of discipline to properly constitute what a freelance load looks like. Did that accrue over time or did you jump into it and go, I'm going to be planned and this is how I'm going to make this work? Oh gosh, it definitely accrued over time. So I'm really just now getting to the point where I am able to shift out of scramble mode. So when I went full-time freelance, I was 
taking essentially any kind of work that I could get. So I was doing blogs for technical clients and IT clients and, uh, you know, little newsletters here and there and social media copy for a goat farm and just things, anything that I could use to stay afloat. Uh, but at this point, I am kind of out of the feast or famine cycle, which is amazing. So I've been able to be really intentional about spending my days doing the kind of humor writing that I want to do to further my career. Before we go any further with Lillian's interview, I want to be clear that Lillian hasn't always been a freelancer. But before she and I talk about moving to Chicago for her career, I have a story for you. Well, Lillian has a story for you. I attended a Halloween party hosted by the editors of Omnarchy where guests had to come with a spooky story to tell. And Lillian was there and she told an incredibly creepy story that I recorded for you to listen to. And I want you to hear it because firstly, it's so weird. And secondly, it gives you some insight into the kind of stuff Lillian experienced as a renter before arriving in the northern suburbs of Chicago. Also a content warning for this story. Somebody chomps very loudly on chips quite early on in the recording, very close to the microphone. As we all know, chomping is a crime. It's not me. I'm not going to name names. But I do know that if you're not into chomping noises, this may not be the story for you. scary apartment story to tell. And I don't think that it's ghost related, although we never really got to the bottom of it. Um, But my very first apartment all by myself after college in Springfield, Missouri, was this like tiny, tiny little loft that I loved so, so much. It was very, very cool. But I had never like gone out on my own and figured out the lease situation before. So I got a lease from this man who was like very seedy in a lot of ways. So I would pay him my $500 in rent in cash only um, (laughs) once a month and I would leave it in a drawer in the kitchen and he would come to get the rent money like at his leisure. It was like the biggest unit in the building and there were six or seven other people and so they would slide their rent under my door and then I was responsible oh, for no. putting it in the, in the oh, door. Oh, <laughs> oh, 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 oh. I was like 21 years old and I was like, yeah, this is how apartments are. This is how they are. so much but really weird stuff started happening like right off the bat so things would get moved around like a chair would be in the bathroom where it had been in the kitchen before and like a stack of papers there was a big piano and a stack of papers would be off the piano like on my bed like weird stuff and I was like oh it's the landlord like this is how apartments are like it's not a problem um and I remember things would either disappear or show up so like my I think like a book disappeared and then I saw a Leonard Cohen cassette tape like in my underwear drawer and I was like okay cool like must must be my tape Um, and I was just so Until I started dating someone and the person was like, hey, like, it's not normal 
that these things happen. And like, <laughs> if your landlord is coming in and moving this stuff around, like that's not okay. Like he needs to tell you he's coming over. And I was like, oh, well, well, I don't know. Like, living the dream. <laughs> but the scariest thing came when I left my phone at work or I left my phone at home when I went to work for the day. So I like left it on my bed by accident. And my mom and I talk on the phone every day. And so it's, we usually talk at like one of two times. Um, and at this time she would always call like right as I was getting home from work, like five-ish. So I usually got home from work right at five, but I stayed at the office like an extra 45 minutes this day. Um, oh, like, I get so creeped out just like thinking about <laughs> So I got home from my job and I was like, oh, I left, you know, gotta call my mom back. I left my phone at home and I had a bunch of like, freaked out texts from her that were like, where are you? What's going on? Blah, blah, blah. And I called her back and I was like, hey, sorry, like I left my phone at home for the day. And she's like, where are you? And I was like, I'm at home. And she goes, okay, I need you to get out. Like you have to get out of the house right now. And I was like, why, what's going on? And she said, I called you normally, like at the time that we normally talk around five and a man answered your phone. No, what the hell? <laughs> so a man answered my phone. And I guess that she was like, hello. And this man just goes, hello. And she was like, who's this? And he goes, who is this? And then she hung up because she was so scared. <laughs> so we called the police and got the police involved. And they came and checked everything out. And they were essentially like, this had to have been someone who had a key to the apartment. Oh, so like, you yeah. need to get your shit figured out. So I moved out the next day and I never found out um, what had happened, but another young woman moved in like five days after no. me, so who knows? Life is material. Exactly. And at the moment we're sitting in your apartment, how would you describe your apartment? I love this apartment. Uh, it's this kind of spacious, airy, top floor like classic Chicago apartment so it's like brick on the outside and we have these cool little old school accents I think it was built in like the 1910s so it's got a lot of um, kind of vintagey charm but I don't know I home decorating is something I really love especially since I'm here all the time like I need to love my space so it's very colorful and I like to collect items that make me smile or make me think uh, so it's I don't know gosh how would you describe the apartment? It's hard. I think you're doing a great job. I think the first thing that I noticed definitely when I walked in the house was that everything felt uh, homey and curated, which is a nice. sign of maturity, I think, only oh, because yeah. I'm doing that myself. So it's an <laughs> internal narrative that I'm affirming by being here. Yeah. Really creating confirmation bias for me that my life's on track. Thank yeah. you. But like, I really love the mishmash of vintage items mm-hmm. and then practical life stuff and turtle snorting <laughs> he's probably gonna start snoring in a minute so i might have to put him down he's really noisy but it definitely strikes me as the an apartment where a creative person lives nice that's so nice there are lots of opportunities and places for you to work in different spots you have a dining table you have a coffee table and a sofa and then you have this studio space as well and you've got beautiful light as well, which yes. I imagine motivates you to stay at home. It's so helpful. There's something about waking up and knowing that you have the entire day to work on work that you're excited about and like drinking coffee in a well-lit room that makes you feel like, okay, like let's do this. This was my first year in Chicago and the summer was so much more brutal than anyone alluded to. Like everyone talks about the winter, but I think the summer might be worse because it's so hot and sticky and as nice as an old school vintage apartment is, we have no AC. So it was, it was a, a, 
harrowing few months. Where were you before this and what were summers there like? Yeah, so I'm from Springfield, Missouri, which is about eight hours south of Chicago. Uh, It's in the southwest region of Missouri. Uh, Summers are much longer there, I will say. They start usually late March, early April. That's when the pineapple whip cart comes out. (laughs) Um, Pineapple whip is this like iconic regional dessert. That's exactly what it sounds like. It's like pineapple frozen yogurt kind of. So that stays out all the way until November usually. So that's the entire summer season. Missouri summers are uh, less less hot, less oppressive, but they're also much longer and a little bit more conducive to outdoor adventuring than Chicago summers. Is that where you started to write humor and satire? It is, yeah. I was working a full-time job in nonprofit communications, and we were planning a film festival. That was a big part of my job, uh, was event management, community events. And how long ago was this? Uh, this would have been in 2017, so almost three years ago, like late 2016, early 17. And we were planning a film festival, and we were having all these conversations with people in the entertainment industry, and I kind of felt this itch. Like, I didn't know at that point that I wanted to write humor or that writing humor was even a career path people could go down because that doesn't exist in Missouri. (laughs) Um, But I was pretty unsatisfied with my day to day. Uh, I didn't feel like my personality was conducive to the kind of work environment that I was in. And so I was going to the movies like all the time and watching movies to kind of decompress. And I've always been a big comedy head. So I was like, oh, maybe making movies is what I need to do. So I tried to sign up for an online screenwriting class with the Second City, and I accidentally signed up for Kaylin Kunkel's online uh, satire writing class. And I think I had like two tabs open, and I was deciding between the classes, and I accidentally signed up for that one. Um, But I never ended up taking the screenwriting class because I loved the satire class so much, so I just finished that track. And from there, it was just kind of a speedy progression. I started uh, doing improv and getting back into some performance routes that I have had and uh, writing other humorous things. And my professional confidence kind of grew from there until I decided in early, uh, I guess, 2018, it would have been like February or March of 2018, that I was going to move to Chicago and immerse myself in the comedy writing community to try to do this full time. At what point did you make the call to move? I think, so (laughs) I had applied to film school, but I only applied to UCLA because I was like, yeah, obviously, like I can get into UCLA. I'm exceptional. And I didn't get into UCLA because duh. Um, So at that point, hold on, I still don't understand why you didn't get into UCLA. My script was not good (laughs) and I had no experience whatsoever. So I was applying to like an MFA program at one of the most prestigious institutions in the country. And I was like, wow, wonder why I didn't get in. Maybe they didn't get my application. (laughs) So that was, I think, March of 2018. And then I moved up here almost a full year later in March of 2019. How are you feeling about moving to Chicago now? I love Chicago. I think it's definitely, um, it's not our final destination. I think that New York is probably the most reasonable outcome. But at this point, I mean, I started my freelance career in a town where I was paying $200 a month in rent. Like that was, we were splitting an apartment and it was like $500 was our rent. So I started in this place where I really had kind of the financial freedom to take some risks in my career. 
And Chicago is more expensive, obviously, but it's not to the extent that like New York or LA is expensive. And this is also such a welcoming place to get noticed and to build a community for yourself and to kind of make some weird stuff before you decide to move to a coast. So I think that I would really like to end up in New York, but I'm also really happy here as I'm still kind of figuring out what those next steps look like. Oh no. We have a car alarm we going have a off. Car alarm. <laughs> oh. Ah, this neighborhood's good oh, about wow. that. Yeah. yeah. That that was quick. That was, was quick, quick response. It's like, shh, this is a middle class neighborhood. We need this to like <laughs> stop quickly. People look just like watch out of their windows in this neighborhood and they will call you out. Like if they see you not picking up after your dog or like loitering for too long, which is highly problematic. But at least those car alarms get resolved quickly. When I started doing comedy, I did it because I realized that when I was younger, I loved making people laugh yeah. and I didn't realize that I did until, and I'd get into trouble for doing things. So when I was in high school, I remember I, okay, I really loved the Saddle Club and I loved Stevie from the Saddle Club and Stevie was a practical joker. I'm so sorry. I'm freaking out because I also love Stevie from the Saddle Club. She was also the coolest one on the covers of the books where they had like the pictures of the girls. And she's the only one who ever broke the rules yeah. or did anything silly and cool and could kind of get away with oh, it. Oh, man. <laughs> and I think she was actually a really outstanding model of a young woman owning her humor. Mm. But at the same time, she was kind of then gendered as tomboyish. So, you know, that was like my earliest memory of being funny mm-hmm. and enjoying it and wanting it. But then as I've done more comedy and satire, I've had to reassess and reevaluate for myself why I do it because I also feel as though in life I love to have a social responsibility and function. From when you realise that you love doing comedy mm. to electing to pursue it as a career, how has your recognition of why and how comedy is valuable to you changed? Yes. So I should say I was also a class clown when I was a kid. Um, I was never cool and I was always a little bit chubby and I was not athletic and I couldn't do the monkey bars, uh, but I loved to goof off because that was how I got people's attention when I was in like the third grade. Um, so I remember doing a lot of stuff like that and also being just delighted by the idea of shocking people. This was so fun for me. Like I remember one circumstance, there's a lot of like not okay things that I probably did to shock people as a kid, but I was, you have to understand I was so awkward and so unsure of who I was. And so I knew I could make people laugh. And so I always wanted to do that. There was an instance when I was probably like eight or nine, like too old to be doing this, but I had uh, two boys. They were twins named Tyler and Parker, and they were friends of mine. And I remember them coming over to my house and their mom came to pick them up. And I decided that it would be hysterically funny if I just took off all my clothes and sprinted across the living room where their (laughs) mom was hanging out with my mom. I was like, this is going to rock everyone's world. This is going to be groundbreaking and hilarious. And I did it. And I remember no one was amused. (laughs) Like... It was 
objectively a weird thing to do. (laughs) And I was also one of those kids who like developed pretty early. So I think I had like some boobage happening. And I just remember thinking this was so funny. And I still think this was a hilarious event. (laughs) Like I'm still so tickled by this. I think that the event has accrued comical value. (laughs) It was like an investment that you did in the past. Exactly. Exactly. I'm going to cash in on it here in a few years for sure. But so things like that. Uh, I was very into when I was a kid and, you know, throughout middle school, high school, even college, being the class clown was something I knew that I could count on, even as I was struggling with figuring out who I was and what I wanted to do. But I never, never thought about doing it on a professional level. And then when I started writing satire, I dabbled with a lot of different kinds. I tried political satire and failed. I look back at some of the early pieces and the pieces like throughout the satire program that I wrote, they're just horrendous because I had not really figured out what I wanted to do just yet. And I realized that the kind of humor that I like to consume is humor that makes me feel seen or makes me feel like I'm not alone in something weird that I do. So like David Sedaris, I'm a huge David Sedaris fan because of the way that he takes weird, embarrassing life events and makes them so cathartic for readers. That's just my favorite. Um, So I realized that the kind of humor that I like is humor that makes people feel a little bit less alone in how weird they are or how gross they are. Like, I think this was when I was in high school. I was probably like 15 or 16 and I had all these gross, weird habits because everybody has gross, weird habits. And there was this meme account in like the early days of memes called Foul Bachelorette Frog. And it was this frog who was gross and would do things like pick her nose and put it under her bed or like just do weird things. And it made me feel so seen. So I think in a way I like to do things like that now. Do you know if that account is still active? I hope so. I don't know if it's aged well. I I haven't looked at it in a long time, so it might, I don't know, she might be a foul problematic frog at this point. So I hate to recommend it, but uh, I remember it being super funny when I was like 15. You talked about the fact that you now use comedy as this way of feeling seen and helping others feel seen, but you actually do that across a number of different sites. And I think that's a real skill that I've admired about you and admired you developing, which is you have taken the thing that makes your comedy yours and managed to translate it into kind of different tones and angles depending on the publication. So, for example, you write for Omnarchy and a title that you wrote for that is like, help my human pet stole my appendages, hit them and won't give them back. <laughs> I, love, I love that they're really funny headlines. <laughs> I didn't write that headline. I should what? be transparent about that. That one wasn't mine. I just wrote the story. I don't know who oh, wrote the headline, man. but I really okay. love it. The piece is really great. Everybody <laughs> should read it. But then another piece that you wrote for Reductorist is, here's how long to run the water to convince people you washed your hands. Everyone does that. Do we not? Oh, (laughs) do we not all do that? I did that this morning at the gym. And the thing that's bizarre is it takes just as long to run the water as to actually wash your hands. Sometimes you just don't want to get them wet. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Sometimes it's just on principle. The principle of not being fucked. Turtle is snoring like a pro is it okay i think it's probably audible on the podcast but it's part of the aesthetic (laughs) of your life so i think it's totally allowed okay okay um 
Another headline that you have written is on the Belladonna. You wrote, woefully misinterpreted hieroglyphics translated by the women of ancient Egypt. Oh, I love that one. The last headline that I wrote down that I really loved of yours was from McSweeney's, which is, Train's songwriting team finalised the lyrics of Hey Soul Sister. <laughs> yes. All four of these pieces have completely different angles and tones, but they're all from you. How do you navigate tone knowing what your own point of view and perspective is? For me, I went through a phase when I was still pretty new to writing satire where I had to get a piece in The New Yorker. Like I was so, I was fiending after The New Yorker. I wanted it so badly. And so I was writing all of these like quote unquote highbrow pieces because I thought that's what they wanted. So I was writing about like nihilism and all of these psychological concepts that I really didn't understand because I don't have a psychology background. So I would Google like, this was my thought process. I was like, the New Yorker probably loves jokes about nihilism. So I would Google like, what is nihilism? (laughs) Which is like, you can't satirize something if you don't know what it is. But I was trying to do this and obviously the pieces were falling flat. They weren't, they weren't going well. (laughs) Well, they weren't funny because I didn't have fun writing them because it felt like a homework assignment. But I was doing this for a long time, like six months, and I wasn't getting anything in and I felt like I was done, like I had written everything good I was ever going to write. And I realized it's because I was trying to contort myself into this vision of what I thought a publication wanted. So I kind of decided at that point to stop writing for what I think publications want and instead write what I think is funny or what I want to get out there and then try to pitch to the publication that I think would enjoy it the most or that it would fit in with the most that's really helpful. I yeah. think also in terms of Omnaki mm-hmm. and the reductress particularly mm-hmm. because Um, I'm not sure about Omnaki, but Reductress has a process where on a very particular day of the week, you have to submit a minimum of 10 headlines. When you're doing that for Omnaki or the Reductress, what is the process that you go through? So Omnaki is really unique and also really exciting because it has taught me the value of volume. So we are a physical writer's room. It takes place every Tuesday and I'm the newest addition to the writer's room. I should say I've only been with them for a few months, Um, but we submit a minimum of 10 headlines every Monday before midnight and then our pieces from the week before that we've drafted. Um, But I find that if I try to just write 10 headlines, then like at least two thirds of them are not going to be amazing. I'm not going to be in love with them. But if I write 20 or 30 headlines, then statistically the ones that I submit, I'm going to like a little bit more. You know what I mean? Yeah. So from Omnarchy specifically, the tone is so specific and so clear. They've done an amazing job of building this world uh, where there is lore, like the fact that the Pope is a leopard and things like that. So instead of starting with like what would be a fun dystopian thing to satirize, I'll start with like what's something I hate this week. (laughs) And I do that for reductors too. I haven't pitched a reductors in quite some time. Um, But for Omnarchy, like I think last week, I probably have my list of things I hate from last week around somewhere. And it's like people who leave their clothes in the community washing machine for more than like six hours and that was a headline that ended up making it and it was something like 
uh, wow, bunker neighbor really just going to leave their shapeless tunic in the community puddle or something like that. (laughs) So I just make a list of things that I hate or things that are irritating. I think that's a really good place to start with any satire piece though, really. (laughs) Yeah. I remember in the online satire writing class that Caitlin Kunkel runs, um, one of the first things that you have to do is kind of work out what makes you angry. Totally. Yeah. And it can just, I, for me, I think the funniest thing, uh, is a minor annoyance. I love to work on a minor annoyance. So like somebody leaving their clothes in the washing machine or like people who talk a little bit too loud at the coffee shop. Um, I think stuff like that is really funny. Based on what you think is really funny. I'd love for you to talk to me about a piece that you have come to really admire a favorite of yours Mm -hmm. by anyone from anywhere. And I'd love for you to tell me what it is that you admire about it. Yes. So I came prepared. I have two. One of them is not a written piece though. Is that okay? Oh my God. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's written, right? Yeah. I guess somebody wrote it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So it's, it's recent. It's from, I think you should leave with Tim Robinson, which I think is the most perfect collection of sketches that there has ever been uh and i think it's called new joe essentially it's a funeral and uh their organist is under the weather so they have a replacement organist come in and he has like an old school carnival organ with like an auga auga setting and he's like throwing plates and he's playing these incredibly jaunty inappropriate organ (laughs) tunes at this funeral Uh, and it's short. It's like a two minute long sketch. And there's this moment where the pastor brings someone up for a eulogy, like the dead man's daughter. He's like, okay, we're going to bring her up for her eulogy. And the organist goes, I'll play her on. (laughs) He plays this incredibly elaborate, jaunty organ tune. And I think it is the funniest sketch I've ever seen in my life. I've seen it a million times and I watch it. I mean, I show it to everyone who will watch it with me. But I think the thing that I love the most about it is the idea that whoever wrote that just said, what if this happened? Like, that's my favorite thing to do. And I've done even long before I started writing humor. <laughs> Sorry, Turtle just, no, he just nailed a big snore. <laughs> he's, he's like my hype man. Every time I say something, he's like, yeah. Before I started writing humor, I've done this forever. I'll think of like an inappropriate social event or something weird that could happen in a target. And I would lean to whoever I was with and say, what if this happened? Like, what if that person peeled off his hair to reveal that he had three lizards living on his scalp? Just like dumb stuff like that. And that's what I think the entirety of I Think You Should Leave is. Like people behaving inappropriately in public and the writer is just saying, what if this happened? It's so funny you say that because you described being a child yes and stripping your clothes off exactly and basically wondering what would happen (laughs) if you just ran past naked that makes the best humor i think like what if this crazy thing happened or like what if this what if this organist threw plates on the ground to punctuate his incredibly inappropriate organ song um so yeah i just love the brain that was behind that and the willingness to say what if we totally suspended reality for a second and did something super silly and zany that is the funniest to me I love that a lot um I also really love Megan Amram's piece uh Captain's Log she wrote it for the New Yorker for Shouts and Murmurs I think it was in the print edition as well but it's essentially 
this log from an extraterrestrial being who comes to Earth to see if it's worth colonizing. <laughs> you don't really realize that it's Earth until you see the narrator describing uh, this god that everyone worships called Starbucks and things like that. And she just gets deeper and deeper into the piece. And Megan Amram is one, I think, who is really good at saying, what if? Like, what if we did this silly thing and took it way too far? So I think that piece is a really, really good example of that. And it also just plays on embarrassing human things. What do you find that you need to get your work done? And based on that, and given whatever it is that you want to do next in life, what do you need to get that thing done? Mm. That's a really hard question. Uh, I think on the micro level, like what I need to get my day-to-day done, I need a beverages <laughs> so coffee and a gigantic water bottle that I take with me everywhere love to stay hydrated <laughs> love to have a glowing complexion as I write satire and you do oh thank you I'm I'm recently moisturized on the larger level what I need to accomplish what's next I think I just want to meet more people um I really value working with satirists and humor writers who have different skills than I do so you know, I have friends who are really exceptional at timely political satire. That's not something that I really uh, thrive while doing. So I really like to hear their perspectives. Um, I think I also just need a little bit of time. I'm working on um, an essay collection right now. And uh, yeah, I think I just time. <laughs> Is that an okay thing to say? Would you talk about how you work or fight for your time? Gosh, I'm so glad that you asked that question. I think there's this idea that a lot of people in the writing community do a good job of debunking, and it's the idea that to be a writer, you must be productive always, uh, or to be a successful creative, you have to sacrifice your life, and you have to sacrifice your evenings and your weekends, and I'm really against that idea, um, because I have found that when I subscribe to that mentality, my work really, really suffers, so it's really important to me to try to set up some semblance of a normal workday, like working 9 to 5 or 10 to 6, and then making sure that my evening Things are set aside for either like a project I'm really excited about, like working on an essay or something that is maybe just for me, or cooking or drinking a beer with my friends. Like, I think that the idea that you must be creating always to be an effective creative is rooted in capitalism. It's pretty problematic, um, but a lot of us struggle with it, especially when we have access to one another's successes all the time. Like how hard is that? You know, when every time you get on Twitter, you see a million people who are doing wonderful things. But what you don't see is that a lot of the time, like I had, I think a, a, like a triple publication week a month ago and somebody was like, whoa, you are grinding. And I was like, what you don't see is that these pieces were all written months apart. Really? They just all happened to publish on the same week. So we're all at different places, and I think it's really, really important to focus on the work that is making you happy and that is furthering your career, but also giving yourself time and acknowledging that where you were a year ago is drastically different than where you are now. And for some people, that's not true. Like maybe life gets in the way sometimes, and that's totally okay as well. So I don't know. Having that kind of a mentality is really, really important to me, especially as my career is progressing. Just knowing that I don't have to 
have the late night gig right now and I don't have to have the six figure book deal right now and we'll probably literally never have the six figure book deal and that's okay um just giving yourself time to grow and decide what projects are worth it for you that was an interview with Lillian Stone, satirist, humorist, non-fictionalist, and incoming managing editor for the Belladonna Comedy. To round off each episode of The Antidote, we're bringing you a performance of a comedy piece featured on the Belladonna, brought to life by the vocal talents of improvisers and voice actors from around the world. Here's this episode's reading. I am the woman who said I'll have what she's having in the diner scene from When Harry Met Sally. Written by Charlotte Frankel and read by Leah Slater. It has come to my attention that there has been a bit of a misunderstanding pertaining to a specific lunch order I placed in the late 1980s. On a beautiful spring morning, I arrived at my regular breakfast spot and took a seat. I noticed a nice enough looking couple sitting a few tables away and smiled. As I looked back down at my menu, a primal noise erupted from the pretty lady's mouth. The noise drew my attention back to their table and my eyes rested upon that sweet, succulent turkey sandwich. All sounds ceased to exist. A pulsation of envy and desire rushed through my frail body. All I could see was that supple sliced turkey breast on rye with a side of fresh homemade slaw. It ensorcelled me. As the woman's moaning ceased, I saw a jaunty little man standing above me with the pad and paper in his hand. Lo, my savior had come. My waiter was here to bring me what I most desired. I looked straight at the woman's plate and said, I'll have what she's having. Was I not clear? Is this not a common diner maxim? I suppose I could have said, I'll have what, and by what I mean the twosome turkey sandwich that she, the arresting woman sitting by the besweatered man-child, is having, or even I will have the turkey sub. But I can't help thinking that this is ageism at play. People see me, a woman of a certain age wearing an oversized burgundy sweater vest, and think, she must be some old, unsexed horn dog. This is both untrue and hurtful. My husband Barry and I were happily married for 23 years and had a thriving sex life before I became stuck in this booth waiting for something I am only just now starting to think will never arrive. I've spent 30 years waiting for the sandwich. 30 years of waiters ignoring and laughing at me. My husband has left me. My children stopped visiting. I've lost my home, my friends, my life. At night, I gaze up at the starless sky and curse the woman who brought this upon me. If she had not cried in ecstasy, my attention would never have wavered from the menu. I would have ordered my regular, a cob salad, and went about my day buying groceries for the children, cooking dinner for my husband, and reading a good Sue Grafton mystery before falling into a gentle sleep. Now, I will never get past E is for evidence. And yet, my life is nothing without the prospect of eating those sweet turkey breasts. I would still be trapped in my old home, waiting anxiously for F is for Fugitive to arrive on bookshelves as I remain servile to those who would call me mother or wife. No more. I answer to no one except my base desires. I remain true to only one thing, and that is the sandwich.
Leah Slater is getting her MFA in comedy screenwriting at DePaul University and with the Harold Ramos Film School at The Second City. You can find her writing on McSweeney's, The Belladonna, The Second City and Robot Butt. And the author of that piece is Charlotte Frankel. Charlotte lives in Los Angeles and she's a graduate of Middlebury College in Vermont. You can follow Charlotte on Twitter at Frank. You can find a link to her original piece as well as links to a number of the pieces that Lillian mentions in her interview in the show notes for this episode. And while you're at it, why not subscribe on iTunes or on SoundCloud or follow The Belladonna on Twitter at the underscore Belladonnas or like us on Facebook or all of those things. Next week, we're sitting down with staff writer for The Onion, Libby Schreiner. Here's the tools The Onion has presented me. These are the boxes they want me to work inside of. And inside of these boxes, I'm going to write what I think is funny and interesting. Talk soon.